No visit to New Orleans is complete without a ghost tour. There are literally dozens available in any theme you can imagine. Pirates, vampires, hauntings, paranormal activities, and more. New Orleans has it all. Perhaps the most famous destination for tours of the macabre is the La Lottery Mansion. On the corner of Royal and Governor Nicole Street stands what some people say is the most haunted house in America. Imagine, you are standing in the twilight of a warm summer day, looking at the house which casts a long, ominous shadow down the street. This neoclassical three-story mansion, complete with the traditional enclosed New Orleans-style courtyard, is said to be the site of a truly horrific case of torture, medical atrocities, and abuse. It has witnessed more than 175 years of hauntings, terror, blood-crazed mobs, and sorrow. Its austere exterior hides the elegant oasis within. If not quite beautiful, the house is dignified. It harkens back to the days when Creole Louisiana was king, and the refinement of the lady of the house was paramount to a family's social success. Imagine you are looking at the mansion, but you are not alone. A tour guide stands next to you. The two of you stare at the house in silence for a moment. When the tour guide begins to speak, he tells you a story. In 1832, Madame Lalaurie, daughter of a prominent Creole family, and her nondescript husband, Dr. Louis Lalaurie, bought this elegant mansion and held the season's most exquisite parties. Madame Lalaurie was a creme of Creole society, renowned for her beauty and grace. Born Marie de McCarty, Madame Lalaurie was married twice to prominent men who mysteriously died leaving Madame a very wealthy widow. Then Marie Dauphine met the good doctor who had recently completed medical school in Toulouse and immigrated to New Orleans. Now, in the spring of 1832, a cloud covered Lollerie's mansion. The whispers of slave abuse buzzed through the city. Louisiana didn't work on the Puritan-slash-British code of ethics for slaves, which allowed an owner free reign to punish or even kill her slaves. The Code of Noir, a decree that defined the conditions of slavery in the French colonial empire, was still in force in Louisiana at that time, and it offered some meager protection to those enslaved. The Code specifically forbade torture, mutilation, and sexual abuse. It allowed for ordinary punishments like refinement, chaining, and whipping. Your tour guide gives you a dark look. Those rumors must have been bad. A young American lawyer who was boarding in the neighborhood heard these rumors. He went to Lollerie home to point out the section of the Cold Noir that prohibited severe abuse. He left dazzled by Madame Lollerie, by her charm and beauty, denying that anyone so lovely could ever be so cruel. Well, the whispers died down. Madame continued 
to entertain lavishly with her two quiet yet reserved daughters by her side. She was known to give the last of her wine to the servant behind her, whispering, Take this, it will do you good. There was even a court record from the 1820s that showed she had freed one of her slaves after the death of her second husband. It didn't seem possible that such a woman was abusing her household staff. Some people said the ugly stories were started by Americans, jealous of the Creole elite, just a nasty attempt to spoil their social standing and bring the proud Creoles down a notch. But in 1833, an unfortunate incident occurred. While combing Madame Lollery's hair, a young slave girl named Nina hit a tangle and sent Madame into a rage. Madame chased the girl through the house with a bullwhip, shrieking like a madwoman. Nina fled upstairs to the top of the house with the raging Madame close behind. Your tour guide points to the third floor. In the gloom, the house seems to be leaning towards you. After a moment, your guide continues. High on the roof, the girl lost her footing and fell into the courtyard below. Her body hit with a thud. Blood spread in the dark halo around the child's head. Eyewitnesses said that Madame just stared at the dead child for a moment and then turned and went back inside. Minutes later, silent shapes emerged from the house and dragged the broken body away. Later that night, the sound of a shovel could be heard in the courtyard, digging the shallow grave near the well. Quiet sobs filled the night. Nina was a beloved daughter and grandchild. You see, the city wasn't blind. The witnesses summoned the police, and Madame was taken before a court of law. The judge was a relative, but New Orleans was watching. He couldn't let Madame off without some form of punishment. He fined her $300 and had her 10 remaining slaves taken away from her. Now you would think that would be the end of that. Your tour guide sadly shakes her head and continues. It was only the beginning. Madame Lollery convinced another relative to secretly buy the slaves back for her. There was no stopping the rumors after that horrible chain of events. It was said that Madame forced her gaunt and starved looking slave to serve her with her shirts off, man and woman alike. Only her coach driver was reputed to glow with health. He had to appear in public with Madame after all. It wouldn't do for any aspect of her outward appearance to be less than perfect. On April 10th, 1834, an elderly female slave who was chained to the lit oven accidentally, or maybe deliberately, set the Lollery Mansion on fire. The flames consumed the kitchen and spread quickly to the main house, devouring antiques and art. A crowd gathered as friends and neighbors came to help. Screaming was heard from the kitchen, and a face appeared in the window, an old slave shrieking for help. 
or maybe Vengeance. That woman is Nina's grandmother, someone whispered. Somebody save her. It was too late. The woman was fully engulfed in flames. Where are the rest of the slaves? One good Sumerian asked Madam. Never mind the slaves, save the valuables. Madam responded coolly. Where are the slaves? Judge Kanango, who lived nearby, asked Dr. Lawlerie. The doctor snapped. Mind your own business and get to the task at hand. Someone in the crowd yelled that the slaves were in the attic. Firemen went rushing up the stairs where they encountered huge iron padlocks on the doors and smoke that choked their every breath. Where's the key? Demanded one of the would-be rescuers from above. Never mind that. Take this painting out, was Madame LaLaurie's answer. The firemen broke down the doors and found the scene more hellish than the inferno on the lower floors. These strong men, used to gore and carnage, backed out of the room shaking and retching. Some could not stop themselves from vomiting. At last, the firemen calmed themselves. Along with some Lollery's neighbors, they went into the attic to save the poor wretched creatures they had discovered. Everywhere the firemen looked, they saw chained slaves. Some were naked and some nearly dead. The stench of fear, sweat, and human waste was stomach turning. But what the firemen saw was infinitely worse. Your guide lowers her voice, as if what she's about to say should never be repeated. All of her slaves had been outrageously mutilated, abused, or starved. One woman had her skin peeled in the spiral around and around her body, so she resembled a macabre caterpillar. One man and one woman appear to have had a crude sex change operation performed on them. Her breasts were sewn onto his chest and his penis sewn to her crotch. Another man chained to the wall had a hole drilled into his head. Maggots crawled in and out of the open wound. A woman had all her bones broken and reset at different angles so that she resembled a nightmarish crab. When the doors burst open, she scuttled to a corner to hide, shrieking out a hideous, high-pitched barking sound. Buckets of body parts littered the room. The tour guide pauses. Involuntarily, you shudder. After a moment, he continues. Several of the slaves perished when rescuers tried to move them. Others fainted from the shock. One woman, blind with terror, jumped to her death from the windows. The slaves were taken to the massive building that served as a seat of colonial government in Spanish New Orleans and as a prison and slaveholding area for the American government. But they were not prisoners. They were taken to protect them from a howling, unpredictable mob. The stunned victims were placed in the slave-holding cells on the first level of the building. Local 
papers reported that more than 4,000 people went to see the poor wretches for themselves and to witness the cruelty the Lollaries had unleashed. Meanwhile, Madame Lollarie had retired to a potion of a house that was no longer in danger from the fire. Shortly after 6 p.m., her carriage arrived at the side door as it did every evening. Her sleek driver, Bastian, opened the carriage door for her. Madame alighted for her evening ride as she did every evening. The crowd could not believe their eyes. Madame Lollerie waved to the mob as the carriage pulled away. The rig rolled down Canal Street toward the Bayou St. Jean, which emptied into the lake where the elite Creole often took their air in the evenings. Bayou St. Jean was also the location of the boat launch across the lake. She's getting away! She's getting away! roared the crowd. The mob pursued the carriage down Canal Street, but the horses were too fast. At the water's edge, Madame LaLaurie slipped from the carriage. Her driver exchanged money with a pontoon captain and she boarded the boat. The mob attacked and killed her horses and chopped her carriage into splinters. The fate of Bastion, the sleek driver, is unknown. One can only assume it was very unpleasant. The tour guide leaves you to ponder this for a moment. You find you would rather not. So the guide continues. The details of Madame's escape are not known for certain, but on April 21st, 1834, the Lollaries were in Mandeville, safely across the lake at the home of Louis Coquillon. Rumor had it that from Mandeville, the Lollaries made their way to Mobile, where a ship took them to France. The frustrated mob returned to the Lollaree's house and looted it, destroying anything that had not burned. The police struggled to keep the mob from setting the place ablaze again. Policemen and firemen stayed on the scene for three weeks to keep vandals from raising the house to the ground. Policemen claimed to hear low moans and scratching sounds from the devastated building. They scurred their house checking behind walls but no additional victims could be found the firefighters could find no more hidden rooms and no more experiments but the noises continued police on the scene claimed that there were ghosts the stories of hauntings had begun there was no stopping the spread of the ghostly tales after that Looking up at the Hulking Mansion, you can easily imagine ghosts gliding through its halls. Your guide continues his story. In the 1970s, renovations were started to divide the house into luxury apartments. Workmen pulled up the floors and discovered the bones of a dozen people who had been buried alive. This explained the cries and scratches the police had heard over 140 years before. The rescuers were so close. 
but he never knew that more victims lay right beneath their feet. And what happened to the Lollaries, you think to yourself, hoping for some kind of justice for these poor, murdered souls? The Lollaries and their daughters disappeared. Most people think they fled to Paris. Some believe they never left Louisiana, while others have suggested that they went to Mobile. Wherever they ended up, neither Delphine Lollerie nor her husband ever returned to New Orleans. Not alive, anyway. You briefly wonder what your guide meant by that, but he continues to speak. There are two different stories of Madame's death. One is that she died amongst her friends and family in 1842 in Paris. According to the other, more dramatic tell, Madame Lalaurie was recognized at a party in Paris. So she fled to Paul, France. There she was gored by a boar during a hunt. A fitting end for such a monster, if the story is true. You find yourself nodding in agreement. Following her death, Madame's body was secretly returned to New Orleans and buried in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1. One of the curates found the cemetery plaque with her name and death date in the cemetery's alley. It's said that her descendants secretly visit her tomb. You blink. You had visited the St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 earlier in the day. You saw Voodoo Queen Mary Laveau's tomb. But you had no idea that you were passing so close to the final resting place of a mass murderer as well. The tour guide resumes his story. Despite the damage inflicted by the mob, Lollary House had many uses since its most notorious owners fled. It was a school for black and white girls during the Reconstruction Era. This high-minded venture ended badly, with the mob coming in and physically removing the black girls from the school. For a while, the house was a music academy, but it was closed due to a public scandal. It was a furniture store, a bar called the Haunted Saloon, housing for Italian immigrants, and men's home called Warrington House. Most of the owners reported paranormal incidents and a variety of specters. One man claimed to have seen the black man holding his head in his hands scrambling like the sound of a crab has been heard in the attic over and over again. Throughout the years, neighbors have reported mansions, windows opening and closing by themselves and the front door opening with no human assistance. Moans, screams, a woman standing over sleeping occupants with a whip and a child tugging on her sleeves all have been reported. Madam's fury at the slave child and the child's gory death are said to be played out in their entirety for horrified spectators. The furniture store had to close because the furniture was repeatedly ripped during the night and found coated with some sort of unidentified goo in the morning. The owner waited up one night thinking that vandals were responsible for the damage. He saw nothing and no one. 
But the next morning, the furniture was ruined again. He closed the store that day for the last time. The guy turns towards you. You can see the glitter of his dark eyes in the fading light. He continues. Jeff Doyer, author of The Ghost Hunter's Guide to New Orleans, says that ghost hunters have the best chance to glimpse paranormal activity by observing the mansion from the far side of Governor Nicole Street, where we are standing now. You and the guide stare at the house for a long moment. You start when he begins to speak again. The house was restored and divided into luxury apartments. That's when the bodies beneath the floors were discovered. Most recently, it was bought by actor Nicolas Cage, who at one time owned at least three haunted houses in the New Orleans area, including Anne Rice's former residence in the Garden District. The LaLaurie house is currently on the market for a sale price of $3.9 million. Care to buy it? The tour guide grins at you. You let out a nervous laugh. It is nearly dark outside. Windows inside the mansion are illuminated with a dull yellow light. You stare at the house and wonder, is it haunted? An entire city seems to think so. And no house deserves to be haunted more than the Lollarie Mansion. Madame Delphine Lollarie, the stuff of New Orleans legend. But how much of the legend is true? How much is grounded in fact and how much has the truth been blurred by sensational journalism and nearly 200 years of gossip and embellishment? Listen as we'll try and tell the true story of Madame Lollarie, one based on facts, on this two-part series. And I'm just, <laughs> and then I'm talking. <laughs> no, but wait, wait! I have something for him. Boom! You get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales podcast. Concentrate on the good. That's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong. Wait a minute before we start. I ain't doing that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Moses Sawyer. With me to my left is Achi. The roles are... Oh, shit, I'm too loud. I'll do that again. The roles are reversed. And sitting to the right of me is my brother. I don't care why it's... Why? Hey, what's up, everyone? How's it going? How's, then, it going? How's it going? How's it going? And that intro that you guys just heard was the intro... Of Mad Madam Lalaurie, which is a book that we're gonna be that I'm that we're gonna be using for today's source. It was written by Victoria Costner Love and Lorelei Shannon. This book, it's fucking amazing. I say that about every book. Every book is amazing, which is true. It's true because they did the, all the work, and all I'm doing is just copying them and just putting it into my own words. Mm. Paraphrasing. You just, love it. You love it. that's college. Do, do, that's do college you think for you. Authors appreciate that that we we kind of. I mean, I bought the I buy the book. I mentioned the book. I put it on the show notes. Because there's, there's like two ways that they could take it. 
there's two ways they could take it. Either one, like, oh, damn, I have people listen, you know, liking our book and, you know, spreading the word and stuff. And then you have another person who's just like, hey, you better pay, pay in some way, either money or some ass. I mean, it's to you. <laughs> no, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Mess to go around. I'll pay we, the money. <laughs> we're 1C. He's like 7Cs. So. This is a little book. So, so we know. <laughs> this is a little book. With a lot of words. See. We know who's slanging ass. Yeah. So that's. Uh, so then you heard that's the intro of the Mad Madame Lalaurie. And if you haven't noticed, that's what we're going to be covering for these next two episodes the life, death, and the. Uh, <laughs> it's not gonna work out, dude. <laughs> I'm fucking dying here. <laughs> you were fine when we were like right before we were recording. <laughs> it's not gonna work out. I'm telling you right now. The- Welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Retails Podcast. I'm your host, Mosasoria. With me to my left is not my brother, but Achi. And to the right, my brother, yeah. Josh. This is weird. I'm usually <laughs> to the fucking laugh. <laughs> Fuck. You can't laugh, bro. <laughs> Sorry for the beginning. We get his own laugh. I can't help. I can't help from not laughing. Where you? Just close your eyes. Just close your eyes. <laughs> 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 oh, shit. I can't see. <laughs> I'm panicking. Evie, shut up. Trying to talk about evil white women. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Weird History Evie Tales Podcast. I am your host, Moses Sawyer. With me to my left is Achi. Yo, yo. And sitting to the right of me is my sick, coughing brother, Josh. I'm not that sick. Oh, good. All right, perfect. He's psyching himself out. I like that. I'm really sick. I need help. I like that. I like that. I'm, I'm um, tell myself that every time I get sick. I'm not sick. They can't they can't tell. But it's taking us twenty minutes to start this episode. I'm they don't, have, they don't have to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. And that intro you that you just heard is the intro to this series' source. It's called Madam Oh, it's called Mad Madame Lalaurie. New Orleans most famous murderous revealed. Written by Victoria Costner Love and Lorelei Shannon. And this book is all about the one and only Delphine La Larine. And we're gonna be cover and this book's gonna be the source to our two part series where today you get hearing part one where it just covers the life and death of Delphine La Larie. And next week we're gonna cover the next episode we're gonna cover all the rumors and everything. We're gonna try to differentiate the things between fact and fiction and try yes. to tell you what's bullshit and what isn't when it comes to the myth of the, the of this Creole. Murderess. Yes, 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 yes. All the good stuff. Yes. So, yes. let's get started. So, Delphine Lalaurie has always been a mystery, and her early life is no different. We don't really know much about Delphine growing up, as her early years were not really documented. And, you know, like, why would they? There was literally, literally no reason to expect that it should be. Delphine McCarty, as was her name before her marriage to Mr. Lalari, she was born into a wealthy, important New Orleans family around 1775. In her family, there was a mayor, a governor, three chevaliers, which is a knight of the French crown, 
several slave traders, and some of the most renowned hostesses of 18th century New Orleans. So she was important in the sense of, like... She got status. She has status, but not important as if anything, like, she wasn't special or anything. You know, she was just born into wealth. Mm. So born into the abysmal, soul-sucking family of politicians and important people in government, the only thing known about Delphine's early life was that she was a beautiful child. Stories of her beauty and charm followed her her whole life. So it's safe to say that if there had been a single hint of her dark future during her childhood, her parents would have kept it a secret. And likewise, if Delphine had been phased in some way that had affected her development growing, this too would have been a dark family secret. So Delphine, she grew up in a typical wealthy Creole family. Her father was Bartholomew Louis de McCarty, her mother, Madame Marie Jean Lovable, and her two brothers, Jean Francois and Bartholomew Louis. So Delphine, she grew up having a very happy, she grew up a very happy, sociable girl. While living in the plantation her family owned north of the city. Her house was a popular place for dignitaries to stop by and hang out while visiting New Orleans. So Delphine, she would have been introduced to a lot of important people, giving her a chance to practice her manners and charm. Creole girls were introduced to society at the age of around 15, 16, and were often married by 17. Now Delphine, though. For no apparent reason, she didn't marry until she was 24 years old. That's pretty old. I mean, considering around that time, no? Because people usually... By, by, by 24, you were already like... You got three kids. Yeah, yeah like you were already like a grandmother. Yeah. yeah. So Your kids are having kids. So for, whatever, for one reason or another, she just didn't marry until she was 24 years old. Hmm. There's no reason why. It's just... It just didn't happen. And it wasn't because she was ugly, because one of the things we're going to hear over and over and over again was how beautiful Delphine was. There's a, there's a fucking ridiculous ass story about how the her involving the queen and the queen let her do whatever the fuck she wants because she was so beautiful. We're going to talk oh, about that later. Damn. I want to be that cute. Yeah, that's not going to happen, dude. Not in this life, maybe in the afterlife. But, <laughs> oh boy, you're so fucked. Too much? My bad. <laughs> so her first husband was a prominent and controversial figure in the Spanish-controlled colonial government of Louisiana. Because remember, at this point in time, Louisiana was not owned by the United States. It was owned by the French government. Oh. This is before the famous Louisiana Purchase. Ah. So on January 1st, 1800, that's a weird date to say out loud. January 1st, 1800. Just because yeah. I've never said a flat it's, number. Yeah, yeah. It's usually like 01, yeah. 50. So on January 1st, 1800, the new intendant of Louisiana, Don Ramon Lopez Yangulo, took office. What you call me? He was most likely introduced to Delphine by her aunt Celeste, who was married to the governor. And on June 11th of that year, Delphine and Don Ramon were married. So when it comes to Delphine's first marriage, almost nothing is known. Was this marriage just a political move? Were they really in love? Who was Don Ramon as a husband? You know, what kind of man was he outside of his work? Nobody knows. The only thing we have on Don Ramon that gives us an insight into who he was is a number of letters. A correspondence between he and Spanish lieutenant that still sit in the Missouri History Museum. These letters show Don Ramon's nature as being somewhat money hungry and always looking for the next move. 
in one of these letters, he makes a request to have the slave trade opened back up in the Louisiana Territory to keep crops tended by unpaid manpower and to keep the money flowing into Louisiana. His request was obviously denied. But on the surface, he looked like a man interested in his job and the responsibilities that came with it. But when he was ousted from his position, they came to find out his paperwork and everything involved in his work was a complete shit show mostly due to him not really caring about his position in government. And on top of him being a fucking dummy when it came to work and his superiors starting to realize it, him marrying Delphine was also a big no-no, at least the way he did it. Because you see, he was a knight pensioner of the royal and distinguished order of Charles III, which meant he had to get consent by the king of Spain to marry somebody. Which he obviously didn't. Oh. So if he went, so if he wanted to marry somebody as a knight, as a knight, he had to get permission by the government and be like, "All right, she's worthy, go for it." And the reason why he didn't do it was because everyone, everyone like from everyone that came from France, everyone that was in Louisiana, yeah. they just said like kind of the low were, class people. Yeah, but they were just like, no, not even that. They were just like, "Fuck it, they're all the they're all the way over there." They're not going to give a shit. Let's just keep getting married. Oh, and, it, okay. and his excuse was like, "Well, my boss did it, and his boss did it. I thought it was okay." Everyone else is doing it. So Lopez, he was stripped of his office and was exiled to San Sebastian on the northern coast of Spain. So when they found out he was married, they sh- oh. so when they found out he was married, they shipped his ass off back to Spain. Damn. But in 1803, the United States took possession of Louisiana from France with the now uber famous Louisiana Purchase. And on March 26, 1804, Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo, he was pardoned by the Spanish government and was actually granted a government position in New Orleans. But while en route via the American ship Ulysses, he died of heart failure on a stopover in Havana, Cuba. Mm. But this is where we start seeing forks in the road to Delphine's story that will inevitably take the, the narration of her life in multiple directions, depending on which road you take. So this is the first of many times in her life that were like we don't know what happened this could have happened or this this is this is going to happen a lot in delphine's story so there are two stories told about this chapter in delphine's life and when when it comes to her her, her first husband one is that lopez was called back to spain to serve king charles the fifth i mean the fourth but he died along the way leaving behind a pregnant Delphine. The other is a more romantic end to this chapter of her life. And according to Elizabeth King, Delphine was a woman of such great beauty that when she went to Spain to solicit the protection of the Queen of Spain for her husband, who had incurred military punishment, she did no more than kneel in a garden where the Queen took her morning walk. Her long black hair was unbound and hanging on her shoulders. Her lovely eyes raised in supplication. The queen stopped at a sight of Delphine so young and so beautiful. She said, your petition, whatever it is, it is granted. You are so beautiful. The queen literally. She's, must the queen, be nice. Must be nice. The queen is just walking in her fucking garden. And Delphine just like gets on her knees. And the queen goes up to her. She's like, whatever it is, you got it. <laughs> like, whatever it is, you got it. I could be the queen. Damn. And flip the script. So and she stabs her there. <laughs> so during that scene where the queen, where she get, where the queen tells her whatever it is you want it, Delphine yeah. tells her, "Oh, my husband, he, this has happened to him. I'm pregnant. Can you please?" She's like, "All right, I'll pardon him." 
So the fiend, she then returned to Cuba, which was a common stop on the way to Louisiana. From from Europe to Cuba, they stopped by. I mean, from Europe to Louisiana, yeah. they'll stop by Cuba. It was like a like a little common like. I was like, stop on the way, rest stop, whatever. Yeah. So when Delphine, when she returned to Cuba, I mean Delphine, she then returned to Cuba only to learn that Lopez, her husband, was already dead. Delphine's daughter was born on the return trip back from Spain. So in 1808, Delphine, now about 32 years old, married a man named Jean Blanc. Jean-Pierre Blanc was a native of France and was said to be a man of great importance in New Orleans politics. Living at 24 Rue Street, Louis with two other males over 16 years old as well as with two slaves. So Jean Blanc bought a two-story brick house almost completed and designed by a prominent architect in 1808. The Blancs had four children, Marie-Louis Jeanne, Jean-Pierre Pauline, Marie-Louis Pauline, and Delphine's daughter from her first marriage from Don Ramon. And on the surface, everything looked picture perfect. Here was this high societal Creole family living their best life. But then when you started looking into how Jean got his money, that's when things started turning kind of dark. In his book, Old New Orleans, this is how historian Arthur Clisby describes Jean. Jean, once a well-known figure in Old New Orleans, merchant, lawyer, banker, legislator, and the man higher up in a certain transaction relative to the importance of black ivory and goods which customs were not collected. So Jean was an illegal smuggler, and his number one import was elephant shit. That's hmm. what black ivory is. Elephant shit? That's what they make coffee out of. Black ivory, the black ivory coffee. Elephant shit? Yeah, you know how there's that one coffee that's made out of monkey shit? Cat poo. Monkey and, shit? Yeah, there's cat, cat poo? And cat, cat poo? shit. Black ivory is elephant dung. I didn't know this. It's expensive. Yeah. Why would you want to? It's good. Asking the wrong guy. You're right. I am asking the wrong guy. <laughs> Moses? Apparently, it's good. Nah, you sound I like know. Two chains was like, nah, I ain't paying. Oh, that's what the cat won. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Off topic. There's a <laughs> sidetrack. There's a video on YouTube where two where two chains. He's trying the world's most expensive coffee. Right. He had his he had his TV show where he would try expensive shit. Yeah. One of the things he was trying was his expensive coffee, uh-huh. and it was like what two thousand dollars a cup. Like the cup was like this big. Yeah. Like a little like a little cup. Like an expensive cup. And they poured it for him, and he's like, "Nah, I'm good. I'll let, I'll let you guys try." He's like, "I ain't sipping that." Uh-uh. Yeah, but that was John's thing. He was an you know he was an illegal smuggler, and his number one import was. Elephant shit. That's what they call black ivory. And he actually smuggled under the leadership of Pierre and the one and only Jean Lafitte, which is a pirate my brother covered last week. And if you listen to last week's episode, oh, listen to last week's episode to learn more about Jean Lafitte and his pirate exploits. So Blank's name comes up more than 350 times in slave schedules. Listed as buying and selling slaves, he owned a pretty sizable fleet of boats that he owned and used in privateering. He was on the New Orleans City Council, but his claim to fame seems to have been his relationship with Jean Lafitte. It will always be remembered that it was to Jean Blanc that Jean Lafitte sent his letters exposing the attempt of the British emissaries trying to seduce the the Baratarians to the English cause. He also wrote these. He also wrote these letters to Blanc while he was negotiating with the American army to help them with the Battle 
of New Orleans. So Jean's name is go is basically like um cemented in New Orleans history. Because he was there. He was at the front lines when it came to protecting America and you know things of that nature. So Jean Blanc, he was not the brightest bulb in the shed when it came to being a merchant. As he tiptoed very loosely on both sides of the law when it came to his work. Because he had one foot with the city council. He was an important person. At the same time, he was smuggling all these illegal shit. It is rumored that Jean was the co-signee of the cargo of Captain Lafitte's prize British merchantman. So there was this one big-ass boat that my brother talked about last week that brought in all of Lafitte's illegal imports. Well, who was the one that signed him in? Jean Blanc. Oh, gotcha. It was Jean Blanc that signed, you know, that was the one who, who did it for him. Mm. In 1806, he was taken to federal court for purchasing 27,000 pounds of illegally obtained coffee, a.k.a. black ivory. Remember, during this time, many merchants were buying illegally off of pirates, but mostly low-priced items, not fucking 27,000 pounds of anything. Like my brother was talking about last week, where there were people, if you wanted something that you couldn't find, you, you go to the pirates and they sell it to you. Oh, I'm looking for, you know, look for this little item, this little item, cool, cool. Jean Blanc is like, hey, I have 27,000 of this shit. Does anybody want anything? Does anybody want some? And that's what ended up getting him kind of trouble. trouble. With the law. Breaking, yeah, the law. Trouble with the law. Breaking the law. 27,000 pounds, dude. That's a lot. But at the same time, this was the same Jean Blanc. That was a commissioner of war under Napoleon who came to Louisiana as a public servant of the country of France with Louisiana's last French governor. In 1804, he was sent He was sent with the governor to attend meetings with Clairborn and General Wilkinson during the transfer of the Louisiana Territory to America. So the fact that he was present when they were working out all the kinks of the Louisiana, of the Louisiana Purchase kind of showed you he was kind of an important guy. Which was weird that he was at the same time an illegal smuggler. But I don't know if he just liked the rush or he liked the money or but whatever it was, he was always one foot in and one foot out. He's just into shit. He loves drama. He loves his shit. He loves drama. Literally and figuratively. So as New Orleans grew, so did Jean's role. And on July 11th, 1812, he was elected Worshipful Master of Charity Lodge by the Grand Convention of Ancient York Rite Masons. This is basically, he was just, he became a Mason. Freemason? Became a Freemason. Jean had considerable influence over many parts of New Orleans politics. He was able to move many French Creole families to step up and defend New Orleans from being invaded by helping the U.S. Army during a spirited address at the House of Representatives. But in 1818, Jean died. Mm leaving Delphine with four children to raise. He also left Delphine with a buttload of money to continue living in style, which is about the only thing he left behind. There was no will, no documentation of his precise date of death, nothing. The only thing we do know is that through city records, Delphine dealt with matters of John's estate. So many cite the lack of verification or even notice in the papers that he might have not died, but just up and left, because there's absolutely no way that someone of John's stature in New Orleans was not going to be mentioned in the papers. Many believe he might have been on the run from the law, 
Maybe got tired of being in New Orleans and wanted to start over, leaving behind the shadier aspects of his life. But literally, one day he was here, and the next day he was gone. That's no, it. Pro- that's it. No, vanished. Just, just vanished. Patrick Swayze, just ghost. Oh, well, they say he died, but there's no proof. Who's they? His men? Just people in general. Like, oh, he's dead. Hmm. But I'm gonna start saying you're dead. Achi's dead. Achi's dead. She's- I'll, I'll say it too. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> On July 1819, Marie Delphine McCarty presented an emancipation petition to the court that she, quote unquote, intends to emancipate her male slave named Jean-Louis for leading an honest life, for never running away, and for never committing a crime. This is interesting as hell, or interesting as fuck, because what is Delphine LaLaurie mainly known for? Torturing her slaves. Torturing slaves. Abuse. And the fact that we have her, we have proof, we have paperwork right here, right now, talking about her wanting to free a slave, kind of contradicts what the fuck is going on. Mm. Hmm. I sense some, uh, some foreshadowing here. Some tomfoolery. Mm. <laughs> ah, it's trick. But regardless of what we would come to think of her, at this point in her life, she was happy. She lived in a beautiful modern home that was that was kept alive with balls and outings. Delphine's position in the city was that of a rising star. Delphine and her children did quite well after the unexpected death slash disappearance of Jean Blanc. On January 12th, 1828, Delphine married her final husband, Le- Leonard Louis Nicolai Lalaurie. And this is where she gets the name. He was a doctor who had arrived from France on February 13, 1825. And La he was an okay medical student and eventually graduated from dental school. After graduating, La was preparing to head over to New Orleans. And we could tell of this because of corresponding letters from Louis' father. Louis would receive a letter about every week or every two weeks being nagged by his father if he had completed his application to the Friends of the Bourbon's organization, which is a Masonic club. So one of the things that that's weird about this whole thing, I didn't realize Delphine was married when all of this happened. Oh, when she Wait, was being abused? The torture? When, during, the, during, the, the during, during the story of the, Delph- of the massacre or the torture of slaves. Well, yeah. That's when I mentioned the firefighters. He asked the husband, Lollary, if he get the key. Well, no, yeah, but that's what I meant, though. Like, I didn't notice it until. Oh, okay, okay, like, okay, okay. And then you mentioned it. Yeah. Without just like her doing this all single handedly or whatever. Well, it's because I knew she had her. I knew her, like, I know. I knew she had. Her husband, previous husband? Previous yeah. husband that had died. I just didn't know she had remarried a third time until doing, you know, research. Yeah. And holy shit, do you find a lot. Are we going to find out some shit? So Louis, he was taken very seriously when he arrived in New Orleans, but he sounded very different from the obvious fake doctors that was trying to make their way into New Orleans. Because remember, this was the 1800s. There was no regulation. There was no nothing. So everyone was just doing what they wanted anybody, to do. And anybody could just say they were a doctor. Anybody could just say they were a doctor. Hey, Josh, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I fucking doubt it. Remember, barbers were doctors. There were barber surgeons. You know what see, I mean? See, this black coat is what we wore. I'm a doctor. Fuck what? <laughs> the white coats. I got but, a black coat. But the reason he didn't sound like a quack 
was because even though he didn't graduate as a doctor, doctor, he did graduate from an accredited French medical school. So he did graduate from a good school. Yeah. So he knew the lingo. He knew how to act. He knew how to talk, which gave Lalaurie the confidence to never restrict himself to just one area of medicine. So he was one of those guys that he didn't just stay. All right, I'm gonna be in orthopedics. I'm gonna be. He's like, I'm gonna do everything and everything. So whether if you want to give whether you need an OBGYN, whether you need uh, uh, your arm, whether you need a surgical console or you need medicine, I got you. Yeah. He was doing fucking. Everything. And like I said, this was, you know, during this time, the practice of medicine was almost unregulated in the early 1800s. It wasn't weird at all for doctors who studied on, on a specialty randomly just switch to another. And if you want to know more about that, check out episode 66, New Orleans, Vampires, Hauntings, and Lore to know more. So by September 27th, Delphine and Dr. LaLaurie they were friendly enough, you know, just rubbing elbows in public places. Or maybe Dr. LaLaurie heard about the widow's exceptional beauty because the tales and gossip of her beauty followed her to her death. So, again, Delphine and Dr. LaLaurie, they were friendly enough that Delphine sent a letter asking the doctor for a small personal favor. I asked Mr. LaLaurie, the man dies Leash today, and I would ask for your business permits to throw these letters without an address to Mademoiselle Pauline to throw them in the bag. I pray that you will kindly take this responsibility and excuse my indiscretion. He just sent out a letter. She asked him for a favor. Okay. She's like, "Can you send these? Can you send this letter? These letters are mine because they have no address. Can you send them to Pauline, hmm. please?" I'm sorry if I'm sorry if I'm being too forward. Yeah, right? yeah. And this is interesting in a number of ways. One, for one, it suggests that the doctor and Delphine had a relationship of some sort because it seems that the doctor knew where Delphine's eldest daughter, Pauline, lived. Remember, she said her letters were the ones with no address. She's like, I'm going to put some blank letters. Those are for my daughter. Can you please hand them to her? So that means they had a relationship already. Hmm. And two, this letter seemed kind of formal, right? It was kind of like a doc, like a, a fr- like a colleague ask for a colleague for a fucking for a favor. Mm. Well, this this favor that she asked for, this fucking letter, it was sent only three months before they got married. How how, how do you talk to someone three months before you get married? You're not gonna talk to them like, can you please do me a favor? And I'm sorry if I'm being too forward. So there's. That dichotomy of relation, like of something going on, something going on, and so already we're already trying to see, we're starting to see some like weird strangeness in the relationship of the Lalauries. So Louis and Delphine bought the mansion at eleven forty Rue Royal in eighteen thirty-two, forty years into their marriage. The mansion was a beautiful two-story Creole-style building with an interior courtyard and several balconies to allow the air to circulate throughout the house. The couple threw lavish parties, which are often written up in the society pages. Delphine Lalaurie was one of the sparkling queens of Creole high society, often overlooked and deemed to be reserved. Louis was overshadowed by his gorgeous wife. And this is going to be the story of their whole marriage. Louis was always going to be a background, in, a background character in his own marriage. 
Always. Useless. Not useless. It was just that he was just to himself. Delphine, she was, remember, she was born in a wealthy family. She knew from a little age how to talk to people. She knew how to how to bring people in. How to, And she was... She was hot. And she was hot as fuck. She was beautiful. Hot as fuck. I don't know what that... To back, you know, those standards back yeah. in the days. She was hot as fuck. I don't know how we'll rate her. I don't want to go there. It's, uh, she's bad, out of my bad, league. Bad. Pre. So at this point in their marriage, there is no documentation that Dr. Lalari having an established medical practice. He was a doctor... He was helping people, but he didn't have an office. All we have are a few receipts and written requests kept in the Missouri Historical Society collection of the doctor providing services. One wrote to Lalari for assistance with a slave who was ailing and the doctor billed him for a potion. It's also worth noting that during this time, it was perfectly legal to use your slaves as guinea pigs for experimenting untried potions and remedies which the doctor did another client asked for a tooth to be removed Lalari was obviously working from home which was also common at the time so one of the funny things that I noticed when doing research for this episode was that Dr. Lalari is always almost always left out of the accounts of the macabre findings in the house in 1834 He's never mentioned as anything more than a background figure, just in the shadow of his wife's overpowering evil. But when you really think about it and you start connecting the dots, if some of the horrors the slaves endured were in fact medical experiments, who would have been more than likely have committed them? A society belle or her physician husband who was known on experimenting on slaves and who was always home? Always. Mm. <coughs> I still think it's a mat, uh, lottery. I'm, I'm gonna say it for, I'm gonna give it to lottery just because I don't want more bad points on team guy. But you know why? Because he's not a team guy. He's a background. No one cares. So it's a perfect scheme. No one would expect a background character, unless the background character is known for experimenting on slaves. Yeah, because he's sh- trash. You know how when they're like when there's a camera panning. <laughs> someone they're, getting, they're interviewing that person the person walking behind them <laughs> he's the guy that, the, the culprit yeah that's him a doctor studying physical deformities makes a no fucking shit suspect when medical experiments are discovered under his very roof Dr. Lollary has some interesting rumors circular, circulating around him at this time so if you were to go into a house the house made up has two people, a doctor and a famous like socialite. Right. In the house, you find there are there are slaves that were being experimented on, and the doctor who lives in this and the person who lives in this house is a doctor, and this doctor is known to have been experimenting on slaves. Who are you gonna blame? The doctor. But everyone seemed to point the finger at Lalari. Again, he's a person walking in the background. So, like I said, there were some interesting rumors circulating, circulating around Dr. Lalari. The New Orleans artist Ricardo Pustiano, famous for his paintings of Madame Lalari, which is the only painting we have 
which is a painting that's in this book, which is that painting that you always see of Madame Lalaurie. Let me see that. Give me that book. Is she beautiful? No, she just looks like a regular. It's fucking trash, bro. No, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, so it was. Edit that out. So, so, so it was this artist, Ricardo Pustiano, famous for his painting of Madame Lalaurie and the Devil Baby on Bourbon Street. Devil Baby? On Bourbon Street, right? I'm going to get to that little Devil Baby right now. <laughs> so, one of the rumors is that this artist, he said during interviews that many New Orleans natives, they believed that the Dr. Lalaurie was testing Haitian style zombie drugs. To try to induce cooperation and docility in troublesome slaves. She was always trying to experiment all these Haitian style drugs and potions to try to get the slaves to obey. He had a lot of failures and those poor poisoned souls were said to have been thrown into the New Orleans swamps. He would just experiment on them. They didn't work out. He literally just throw them into the swamp alive. Just They're going to die and the gators are going to eat them up. Gee. But we'll get into we'll get into more we'll get into more detail on next week's episode Uh-oh. when it comes to this. And then the other rumor going around Dr. Lawler, revolving around Dr. Lawlerie has also been associated with the Devil Baby, a supposed deformed or insane child, rumored to be the spawn of a mortal woman and a demon. The baby was found by Voodoo Queen Marie Laveau, which I think you covered last week as well. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned her. Yep. She found this baby, and she gave the, the belly to Dauphine and Louis to raise. And this, too, we'll get into it. We'll get into on next week's episode. But these are just some of the rumors that are going around um, the doctor at this time. Mm. Right? So the Lollaries, they lived a life of beauty and elegance, only interrupted briefly by rumors of slave abuse in the spring of 1832. Oddly enough, later that year, the Lollaries petitioned the court to free their slave, which was granted in August 1833. Eight months later, the Lollaries would be revealed as torturers and possibly murder, murders of slaves. So in a span of a year, while people were getting to know the Lollaries, they're starting, all these rumors are circulating around the house, around the, around the mansion, then there are then there are stories about that they're that they're messing with their um that they're messing with their slaves and around in this time Louisiana was quote unquote progressive in terms of that were that, that the slaves had rights in terms of like you can't exp- like you can't just fuck with slaves like they were like animals you can't just beat them and abuse them like there there are rules to keeping a slave and what the Lollaries were doing were against those rules. Right, so it's a year coming up to the famous fire of 1834. There's all these rumors that he's experimenting on these slaves, throwing them onto the river. He's in charge of a devil baby. They're they're mishandling that they're mishandling their slaves, and then they free a slave to kind of try to like fix the PR scheme. Hey, look, we're good. Yeah, so there's like all these rumors literally building up to the fire of 1834. I wonder what they told that slave. Which one? The one that got freed. Hey, bitch. Here's some, uh... You think you're free? Shut the fuck up, Mike. You think you're free? Well, Go back to that episode? Well, I mean, I don't know if it was the same slave that was... Oh, that was... That was... That was... That they were... That they were being accused of misconducting on. 
Like maybe they were like maybe they were like, oh, he's fucking with Achi, and I told him, oh shit, we gotta fix it. All right, Josh, you're free. Go go go. See, we're so nice. We're letting the slaves free. Why are we gonna abuse them if we're letting them free? Shoot them. Mm. But remember, at the same time, a few years prior, Lalari actually did let go of a slave. Mm. That's true. That's true. So the so the the even though they were like huge stars in this Creole society, like they're socialites. They're there's ugly. They're still like that little <laughs> about the yes, yes, about yes, the Valeries. Yes. So a month after they freed the slaves, a summons was issued to Louis Lalaurie. Delphine Lalaurie petitioned for separation from Louis, who was not living at the royal address at the time. In the summons, this is what Lalaurie claims: On the twenty sixth of October last, in the presence of many witnesses. They said Louis Lalaurie went so far as to not only ill-treat her, but was to beat and wound her in the most outrageous manner. Wherefore, the plaintiff prays your honor to authorize her to sue her and said husband for a separation from bed and board and thenceforth to grant her decree that they be separated from bed and board and authorize her to live separately. In the meanwhile... From her said husband. So she wants to get divorced. Basically. She was getting beat. She was getting she was getting beat. And like she was um in the book they don't describe things of that nature. Like they don't describe him like what he actually did to her. They're just saying that he, she was being mistreated. But later on we're gonna find out that uh he was he was mistreating her. Like he was making her sleep on the floor. Like doing like things of that nature. So You're not pretty now. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! <sighs> he beat her because she was so beautiful. Oh boy, sucks to suck. So during this same time, Madame Lalaurie lent money to a free woman of color, Sarah Lee, in 1833. And many point to this as a sign that Madame Lalaurie was not unfriendly to people of color, which many point that the abuse of slaves in the Lalaurie house probably had little to do with their color. If in fact it was the ma- it was the madam doing the torturing, so they're saying, look, she wasn't racist toward black people or toward you know toward their slaves. If she if it was Madame Lalaurie and if she was experimenting on her slaves, it was because they were there, mm-hmm. because they were there and they had no rules, not because they were black. Because we have instances where she gets along with black people, she gets along with Creole people. She's yeah. handing out money, yeah. so it's not has. So if the fact that she's doing like it sucks like. You can't say she's not she's not racist when she owns slave because that's ra- that's racist as right. shit. But they're saying she's experimenting on on them not because she hates them, just because they were there and she wanted to experiment. Because which they're, it, they're, they were a slave. It doesn't make it doesn't make it any doesn't it doesn't make it any better. Anymore. But it's trying to wash some of that white guilt away. You know, when white people are like, look, like she owned slaves, but she didn't hate them. Like, yeah, she did kill them, but not because they were black. So we all know that the house fire that began on April tenth, eighteen thirty four changed the LaLaurie world. Often in the retelling of the story, Dr. LaLaurie is said to have been missing, gone, or even dead at the time of the fire. However, the deposition given by Judge Conango in court on April 24th, 1834 says otherwise. And this deposition was printed on the same day that the fire happened. Mm-hmm. Here's a little excerpt of this deposition. That he entered 
accompanied by citizens with him, two negresses were found incarcerated, whom be liberated from this den as it were. That several voices were heard that there were other victims in the kitchen. That he repaired thither, but found no one. That one of the negresses had an iron collar, very large and very heavy, and was chained with every heavy irons by the feet. That she walked with the greatest difficulty, that he was unable to examine the one behind. That one individual, whom B believes to be Mr. Gillett, said to him he knew of another slave was confined. That he entered with this gentleman into another apartment, whereupon someone's removing a mosquito bar, an old negress was found with a deep wound in her head. That she appeared to be quite feeble, too much so to be able to walk. That some of the persons present to have her removed to the mayor's office, where the first two had been removed. That upon his demanding of Mr. Lollery if he had any slaves in his garret, he replied with an insulting tone that there were persons who would do much better by remaining at home than visiting others to dictate to them laws in the quality of officious friends. So there we have it. Official government document having Dr. Lollery present. In that document, they don't mention Delphine. She was there. But she was like not the central figure that we all that we all think that we all think of the story. Because remember, we all think of the story that she was beating on this woman, and then she, like, like to punish her, she chained her up in the kitchen. She's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you later." And then she was walking around to beat the shit out of the other slaves. And then, and then while while she was going around just beating slaves for the sake of beating slaves, mm -hmm. this chained slave started the fire. Mm -hmm. And the fiend was the first one to get the fuck out. And then we heard from the stories that. She was like the main, like the main person that, that, that the people talked to. Where they're like, "Oh, is there a secret room in the attic?" And she's like, "That's no, that's none of your business, whatever." Yeah. And then they're breaking in. That's not the case. It was Doctor Lallery who they spoke to. Doctor Lallery was like, "Yo, man, y'all just, y'all just be nosy for for being nosy." They're like, "Dude, your house is on fire. Like, we're trying to figure out if there's any more slaves in any other rooms." It's none of your business. So the deposition doesn't exactly talk talk about the horror show that this incident eventually grew to be. But it does tell a different side of the story that's very rarely heard. We now have eyewitness accounts of Dr. Lollery not only being present, but having such a disregard of the helpless people perishing in his very house. Hmm. Louis is starting to take a hit to this to his character. And would be further tarnished early in their exiles. Madame and Dr. Lollery went to stay for a time at his family's estate in France. Madame's son, Pauline, later wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, Delasses, in which he spoke of the bad treatment that his mother, Delphine, received at the Lollery's house. Told that Delphine was forced to lie without a bed. And every time the Delphine's um, son would talk about his stepfather, he wouldn't say father, he wouldn't say Louis, he'd call him a jackass. What? That's the good much, old jacket. That's how much disdain he had for his dad. Like his dad was a piece of shit. But we don't hear about that. We just hear that the, it was, we just hear that little excerpt of Delphine. Then for a while, he any mention of Louis just disappeared, and he disappeared for a while as well. 
and the Lala Reeves eventually separated at, you know, just some point. The last correspondence recorded from Louis was from Cuba in 1842, asking that some of his possessions be sent to him. Louis' death has not been verified. The search for death and birth records in Cuba is a hard process if you are not in the country. Searches have to be done church by church, and the researcher needs to be able to narrow the search down to years. Mm. So it's not you can just go on a computer and be like, oh, let me search the date for this dude's name. No, no, no. You have to find out what church he died and what year so for you to get the records. No one knows where he died. No one knows what church he died and if he died at a church. No, He just... He's just gone. He's just gone. Vanish. So after the fire, we all know that that uh, she that she immediately fled. She you dipped. know what I mean? She dipped and and the, uh, and they all took off. We don't know how much of that is true, because when you when 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 you read the legend, the horror story of the Madame Lalaurie, you immediately everything they all mention is while the firefighters were in there taking people out, she was already on the one on one getting the fuck out of New Orleans. She was getting the fuck out of there. We don't know if that's how it happened. We don't even know if she actually did leave New Orleans. She was just hiding out. We, they don't know, but we we do we don't know if we, we don't know if she left immediately, if she left right away, or she just like it was like you know what this is this is some shit I don't want to deal with it I'm just gonna bounce like we, we don't know, mm. but we do know that um, she did go to Paris. We don't know if she left to Paris as a runaway I gotta get the fuck out of here kind of way or if it's just like. Rich people, you know, like, oh, I, I don't want to deal with this. I, I just need to get away. And she just went to Paris. So after her flight from New Orleans, Madame Lalaurie, she did set up in, she did set up residence in Paris. It is assumed that she stayed at one of the family homes of the McCartys or possibly at the Potalba residence. She had her six-year-old son by Jean Blanc, her daughters Pauline and Laure, and her son Paul. An early report of Madame Lalaurie after her exile appeared on December 8th, 1838. The story as told by Methodist minister, Dr. Miller, is he recognizes a fellow guest known to others as Madame de Larcy, as the notorious Madame Lalaurie. Hmm. After searching his troubled soul, he tells the other guests of her gruesome actions. Madame Lalaurie flees from the estate at the end of the tale into obscurity once again. So after this whole Madame Lalaurie thing happened, in New Orleans, we start hearing things from different places. Like, oh, we heard the story in Paris, and this is one of the stories we heard, uh-huh. was this minister was at a party, he sees this beautiful woman, she's like, yeah, my name is Madame Lacarte. He's like, she seems familiar. He's like, that's not Lacarte, Lacarte. That's fucking La Larie. Hey! He started tapping people on the shoulder. That's a chick from New Orleans, the one that's experimenting on people. And then she's like, oh, shit, people know who I am. And she dipped. Those are the kind of stories we're hearing outside of New Orleans. Hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your slaves. Exactly, exactly. That's what happened, bro. And this narrative is kind of dramatic and reads more like a piece of short fiction than an account of an actual event. However, it is an interesting representation of what Madame might have faced in the tight communities of the French and French Creoles. But more than likely, is it's that Madame Laurie was not hiding at all. She could be prosecuted in France for what she had allegedly done in New Orleans. Her whereabouts were no secret, unlike her last years. So we kind of knew where she was at certain times, but we don't know if that's just because she was hiding or because she's just like visiting places and just living her best life. Mm-hmm. There are several accounts of Delphine's death 
that have been entertained by storytellers and historians. One report suggests that she was killed by a wild boar in a hunting accident in France, mm. while another story that ran in March 1892 insists that she died among friends and family in Paris. Other accounts note that Dauphine actually never left Louisiana and actually just moved north of New Orleans for the remainder of her days. Current research indicates that all of these accounts are fucking wrong. Wrong. She, she teleported. Madame Delphine returned to Falbarg Marigny in New Orleans in October 1842 and lived there until her death in the mid to late 1850s. Bills of receipts and other notes from Madame Lalaurie to her son-in-law indicate that she was having residence she owned in New Orleans. So we have receipts and letters saying that she was in New Orleans. She was was paying rent. She was giving money to her estates like she was in New Orleans. A receipt dated in 1841 shows her her paying bills for a property on the corner of Rue Marigny, which is only six blocks away from the scene of the fire. So she's still paying rent on a house that's fucking six blocks away from the fucking fire. Until recently, most historians concurred that Delphine Lallerie died in France on December 7th, 1842, and that her body was secretly returned to New Orleans. This belief was based on a single discovery made in the 1900s when a sexton to St. Louis Cemetery discovered an old cracked copper plate in alley number one of the old graveyard that read Madame Lalaurie died Paris December 17, 1842. But it turned out that this plaque was not real. They found out that it wasn't real, that it wasn't, it didn't say the date of law. It didn't, it was just, it just wasn't real. But was it a coincidence that the death date on the plaque coincided with her actual return to New Orleans? Was this meant to convince people she had died while living right underneath their noses? So maybe the plaque wasn't real in terms of that she actually died, but maybe she went away, she came back, did it, hit it, and then she's like, I'm living here. I mean, if you're someone who's that fucking beautiful, we all know who's the most beautiful one in town. It's fucking her. How she like? Did she literally not go outside, or she just covered her whole fucking face with uh? Like, she, come so, on. So she put. Did ac- she pay off her neighbors? Like, yo, shut the fuck up. She don't say a- shit. She she sprayed acid on her face. Uh, she, um, so I she. I fucking doubt it. Like, that makes like, sense. But at the same time, the places she's living at is with people who own slaves. She's living next to these huge plantations. Yeah. Do you but- think those? Do you think those people have any remorse for what she was doing to some, the slaves? Some did. That's why they were spreading the rumors. Yeah, because there was like laws to I know, treat but, your slaves. But I don't think it was the slave owners that were freaking out. I think it was just the regular people that were like, yo, that's fucked up. That's that's my thing. That's my thing was like, because like rich people, like if they fuck up, 
like if they fuck up, they're like, oh yeah, I'm a fuck up, but I'm, I'm but I'm okay because I'm just gonna kick with rich people. There's not gonna be no consequence. Mm. That's how I saw it with Madame Mallory. She was always famous. She was always rich. She stayed rich. She stayed. She's living with the rich people. She's like, I'm just gonna stay up here. I'm not gonna go down to the square. I'm not gonna go down over there. I'm just gonna live here. Just chill. If I need to go soon, if I need something, or if I need want to get something, I'll just Uber eats that bitch with a slave. With a slave. Yeah, I mean that's the way I would see it, but that makes sense though. Like the way you would say it, like because she is beautiful. Someone is gonna see her, yeah. Unless she lives in like this big ass plantation where like there's no. Unless you go all the way into her fucking big ass driver, you're gonna see her. Mm, true, but like that does make sense. Like she's she's supposed to be fucking beautiful. So where is Lollary buried? Well, her late husband Jean Blanc, the Blanc daughters, and Madame Lollary all rest in unknown burial sites. The Historic Preservation Program conducted an extensive survey of all the tombs in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 and Tomb Number 323 is allotted to the extended Forstel family, with interments dating from 1823 until 1850. So they're saying she could be married in this family lot. Because mm-hmm. that's the family she... That's the black family. But to further complicate the mystery of where Madame LaLaurie is buried... There is a burial record for a Delphine Lopez in the St. Louis Cemetery, number two. It is thought that the record refers to another woman, but it's possible that Madame LaLaurie was buried under another name to protect protect her body from exhumation or desecration. There are a number of plots where she's rumored to be buried in, but remember, one needs to remember that in New Orleans, bodies often stay in the burial chamber only until they decompose. They are then removed to make room for other bodies. Delphine Lollary's bones are, by now, quite possibly mixed with dozens of others in an anonymous crypt. Perhaps it is best that Madame Lollary's final resting place remains unknown for the sake of the descendants and the families of those who may be buried with her. And that is the end to part one of our Madame Lollary series so what i'm telling you when i was doing this i was like cool i'm expecting like yo i can't wait to be talking about this evil bitch like fuck this lady it's gonna be cool and i'm reading i'm doing it i'm like yo she i don't think she did it i think it was her bitch-ass husband there's not a lot of a lot of not a lot of information on him more on her it might just be all up front and who because who, she is the the important person technically she's yeah, the one that she about it like what well, ex- like, but remember come on she didn't know about it but she was also married to two other people who were fucking up so sure. maybe she learned i'm i'm just i'm just, just turn the cheek just gonna, turn the other way I'm just yeah. t- remember her first husband jean blanc he was fucking with pirates he was doing all this shit He's fucking with shit no i mean jean blanc he was um he was he was uh the f- uh from france he was a spaniard guy he didn't give a shit about his job he was doing everything illegal she married him he fucked up he was he was sent up to the gulag and he died she's like oh fuck all right and she married the, another dude who was fucking slanging shit in the callejones just selling illegal shit she's like you know what i'm just gonna turn you the cheek i'm not gonna do anything he ended up dying and she's like fuck she married the third guy she's like this guy's looking a little sketchy i'm just not even gonna bother i'm just gonna turn around keep throwing my party he's gonna do everything this is why i be dentist ass motherfucker <laughs> look at this dentist trying to be a doctor <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first hit that she took to the face, just bah. So yeah, so that is erase uh, that. 
Yeah, so that is the basically the backstory of Madame Delphine Lalaurie. What do you guys think? Do you guys still think that she's like from 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 what we have from what I've said so far? I think I, I feel think like they were both. Oh, go go go! I was gonna say because because what I have to say is more important than what Josh has to say. Okay, doctor. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Scrub. Somebody's gonna slap the shit out of you. <laughs> Dentist. <laughs> Professor. <laughs> I, I I think that she gave him all these ideas of like, you know what? Maybe try this. But I I don't feel like she's done like anything hands on. You think so? I think so. I don't think she was like literally getting her hands dirty on all this stuff. Dude what do you, what do you think? Yeah, mine was uh they're both into this shit. But him as a quote unquote doctor mm-hmm. and her into the abuse and torture. I think it worked both ways. She's all right, I could for science, I can experiment on these slaves, yeah. right? While I'm good, she's good by just torturing yeah. and gaining that, that pleasure drive, of torturing, that right. drive of just torturing and with all these rumors. Ideas. So, I don't know. Both are like, hey, you want to like shake hands on it? We're both fucking um, fucked up in the head. Man, the, let's not say a word about it. They were the Hardy Boys of the fucking torture. Don't you ever torture? compare the Hardy Boys <laughs> with the fucking Lala Rees, okay? <laughs> I actually think she's a hundred percent innocent, no, 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 and no, no. she was just thrown to the wolves. I don't think she's a hundred percent innocent. I think she's because for one, no, like I honestly think she's completely innocent. There's no like no one starts liking tortures in their thirties. In their thirties, like, no one just immediately lose flips the script and becomes a fucking masochist like that. It, like in terms of what you guys were saying, where she wasn't the one who was bending the tort, you know. She she showed no signs of of being like psychotic or being crazy. I mean, sure, there, there was no nothing was said about her for early of of her early life, huh. but like, well, that's the, the dark part of all of this. But like, there's no like, there's nothing that points to her. Everything you points. It just to flip dark. for it. Flip for it. Heads, no, fuck you. It flip for it. Heads, you believe she's a. Uh... You know who? Like this reminds me of the whole. Bathory, the whole Bathory thing, you know, mm. the the Blood Countess. Yeah. How there's rumors saying that none of it is true. She never, it was just dudes who were just hating on her that she was so powerful that she owned so much land that they needed for like, for like strategy and shit that they just started all these rumors about her and started attacking her and when she tried to defend herself, they're like, see, see, only someone guilty would do this shit. Only someone guilty would fight back. If she was innocent, she wouldn't care. And then she's like, no, I care because you guys are attacking my character. You guys are not trying to take my lands. So slowly, so slowly, but surely, as time went on with Bathory, people started adding like, oh, yeah, she's bathed in virgin bloods. Oh, no, she didn't kill 50 virgins. It was 100 virgins. Oh, no, no, no. She wouldn't kill during the day. She would only kill at night. So as time went on, that's and that's what, that's what I'm thinking is going on with Delphine. Because for one, she was really pretty. And I'm assuming there's going to be a bunch of hating ass bitches. I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure all the people that, that said all this stuff about Lalari, we're all a bunch of ugly bitches. It was just like older, just ladies heading on her, and at the same time, I heard she kept like she kept marrying dudes, and she kept she just kept all her she just kept all their shit. She kept getting richer and richer. I'm assuming. Wait, she kept all their shit? Well, yeah, cause she was married. They died. She kept all. Their, oh, right. Damn. But it's proven that she didn't kill any of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine she freaking uh, give them cyanide. I mean, I mean, Jean Blanc, maybe, because that just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> like, he just, he, just, he just disappeared. 
But he was doing some like grimy shit that he might have just gotten killed. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like that that could that could have been something too, where like all these powerful dudes, all these dudes with money, they're used to getting their way with women, and here they is. And here she is, the most beautiful woman of New Orleans, and she has more than what you have to offer. So when some shit cracks, people are like, nah, that nah, was her, it was her, it was her. Plus, it's probably like that boys will be boys bullshit where it's just like, nah, 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 nah. Like, yeah, he was doing it, but like he, he's a, yeah. but if if he says something and he gets caught, he's gonna he's gonna six nine and he's gonna Takashi me, he's gonna yeah. Takashi him, he's gonna, he's gonna bring us all down. Yeah. That's that's how I ended up after doing research for this. I I completely 100% thought she was going to be guilty of something. Yeah. Whether or not the, the the exaggerated stories were exaggerated or not, I figured that she, oh, she was an evil bitch. She was this. No, nah, she wasn't. There was no proof. There was no, no one has said anything otherwise. You know what's weird, though? That the first two people that she married were of high status. And then, like, just a dentist doctor just came out of nowhere and she was like, yeah, whatever. I'll take him. Well, I mean, that, I mean uh, you just have to look. She was 35. She had like nine kids. Like well, only one of them was actually hers. The other one from like the first dude had three. The second dude had two. And oh, she, she inherited all the kids too? Well, yeah. She's her mom. She's her stepmom. What's, what's she going to do? I mean, around that time, you'd be like, well, your dad's God, so you are too. <laughs> you know, that's what that's what I'm at. And that's interesting that you can still think that she's like guilty, somewhat guilty, that she's guilty of something, right? I feel, yeah. I mean, I mean. Considering all the rumors that that you've heard, there's got to be some truth to all of that, you know. Yeah, but then you mentioned about the haters. <laughs> haters <laughs> haters hate. will fucking hate. Haters dude. will hate. Potatoes will potato. You know. Yeah, so, bitches are scandalous, bro. So you know, join us next week as we cover what what Madame Lalaurie. We confirm or deny everything we just yeah, said you right know, now. You know, you know, like we talk about. Her place in popular culture and history, if it's all true, you know, our conclusions, we're going to talk about the myths versus facts, yeah. like that thing where the devil baby and then like the fucking, uh, what's, what was the other one? All oh, the dude experimenting on zombies and yeah, then yeah. throwing them onto the swamps after they, they didn't work out for them. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about all that juicy stuff next week on part two and conclusion of our Madame Dauphine Lollary series. So, do you, if you guys don't have anything, do you guys have anything else to add? Hate is gonna hate. If you guys don't have nothing else to add, uh, please just do us a favor. Add us on Instagram at Weird History Eerie Tales Pod. And as always, we are the Weird History Eerie Tales Pod.